0: to know.
1: have vast amounts of large-scale storage large-scale processing that support the metaverse just like we have large-scale plumbing large-scale electric grids large-scale uh gasoline stations you're going to have to have the metaverse equivalent of all of that and no individuals could be able to have that so that by definition it's going to have to be a shared you know cloud-based or some kind of shared infrastructure so all that plumbing work and uh design and architectural work has to be going on in the background. Mm -hmm.
0: So this Intel executive uh, did say that we need an entire plumbing uh, of the internet infrastructure That we are sort of.
1: Side. they don't want to have an online presence the reality is that their payment systems are being done differently their bills are being sent to them differently um, their friends are contacting them differently they're making restaurant reservations differently so even if today you think you're not using the internet internet you are using the internet and so I, I think that I think that once you go through you know history with Country rich at one time, um, and so what happens is some people become wealthy, and then over time, even through taxes and through other systems, you distribute some of that wealth. And some countries are better at that than others. Uh, China's
2: you know, shared prosperity program is off to a very rough start, but that clearly is in the back of the mind of some of the Chinese leadership. In terms of the haves and the have-nots,
1: is a major concern, and we're going to have to we're going to have to be very very clear uh, in terms of the economic benefits and how economic benefits, especially in developing countries, uh, wind up accruing. Initially, the initially the people that control the metaverse in those countries or design it or or enhance it and contribute to it, they'll get a disproportionate share of the wealth. But we're going to have to we're going to have to work really, really hard in helping the world have a fair system for distributing the transaction dollars distributing the money and the wealth and the knowledge on the, the metaverse it has the potential technology has always had the potential to be of a great, a great benefit technology also cuts the other way where while it does a great amount of good it can also do a great amount of harm um, I am the camp that says we're going to wind up with hugely disrupted transitions in jobs um, China may be one of the first countries to have a huge disruption in terms of its workforce as advanced manufacturing really cuts back really uh, destroys a large number of manufacturing jobs I would agree 30 40 50 years from now it, the jobs will start to catch up because of the other enabling and positive effects of technology but I believe that the transition, you know, getting there, is something that we're not prepared to deal with at all. And the metaverse has a chance to ultimately be part of the solution. But in the short term, make it much
0: worse. Okay. Now, uh...
1: sense to me. Like we have one planet. Now we have countries that have borders, so you need to have passports to travel within the countries. You have different laws, so you can't insult the king of Thailand uh, while you're in Thailand if you wind up in jail. Um you know I mean so we uh, can't smoke in some countries, you can smoke. So everyone so so I think the metaverse done correctly
2: will become a mirror or a uh, version of what the earth looks like, and we'll have our digital passports and our digital IDs allow us to move. What
1: I actually think is the concern is that when you talk about parallel metaverses, that you actually talk about things where the values, the the humanity within those metaverses is different, where people get mistreated, or minorities get mistreated in one metaverse, but not in another. The metaverse becomes a safe haven for hate crimes and for those kind of It's not sustainable, and that technology will not
0: Correct. it is about all of
1: you look through the lens of politics, it's never clear. And so, unfortunately, China's, you know, Xi's promotion of ideology within China is hitting the U.S. right at a time where the U.S. is, is questioning some of its own strengths and weaknesses. So, what I would say is we've done, we've I've been involved in quite a few groups over the last two and a half years of discussions on U.S. and China relations and U.S. technology uh, evolution, U.S. technology competition uh, between uh, the U.S. and China. What it all comes down to is when you look, when you, tr- when you look truly at what the U.S. needs to do, there's very little that involves China. All the things the U.S. needs to do, the U.S. should do, whether China existed or not. And I think that what we have to do in the United States is come back to a more clear-eyed view of. To make the U.S. better, this is what we need to do. Now, China is going to view some of that as being targeted at China. And it's not targeted, in my mind, it's not targeted at China in order to constrain China or prevent China from developing. But China's rise did trigger the thought process in the U.S. And so the balancing act that both countries have to have have is... China needs to continue to do what it needs for the development of the Chinese people, the enrichment of Chinese society, uh, the more shared prosperity. I mean, it is amazingly interesting to me that they can't pass property taxes in China, which is fundamental to the common prosperity. I mean, you you cannot do it without that, but they continually run into roadblocks of, of addressing that. On the U.S. side, the U.S. needs to make sure that Again, we're doing this for the benefit of the U.S. We're not trying to constrain China. So the the messaging between the two countries, unfortunately now, it's all through the political realm, and it's not through the realm of clearly we're articulating this is what's best for our country, this is what we need to do, the U.S., the same thing. And if we can get back to the point where you're articulating why you're doing something for your own benefit, then I think you can start to reestablish trust in some of these areas. Uh, but right now, it looks as though what China is doing is targeted and hurting the U.S. The U.S. reacts by doing things, that China thinks are targeted and hurting China. Very hard to have a practical discussion when you think that someone's intentionally trying to hurt you on both sides. It seems like you know in both Chinese, um, Jonah.
0: or, you know, thinking purely from uh, an, an economic interest And it's generally worked out for me, so I would say, I would say yes. I'm hopeful that it, I'm hopeful that that it'll work out. I will say, COVID has hurt China far more than the U.S. Uh, The U.S. lost a lot of people. You know, many people died in the United States. But I think that what's happened is, you know, the U.S. didn't, the U.S. didn't shut down so much that people quit traveling and going around the world. You couldn't go to China. So I think the last two years, there has not nearly been enough interaction between Chinese business people, U.S.
1: business people, Chinese politicians, U.S. politicians, Chinese military, same thing with students, that there have been a, a number of things that have gotten in the way of that kind of more free flow of interaction. And I think that that ultimately, I think China used it, I think she tried to use that to his own purposes. And kind of almost more independence within China from the West, more separation. I think that's a mistake. You know, when, you, when you're trying to work with someone, and China can't, if the U.S. fails as a country, it doesn't matter what China do, the world's going to be a mess. It's the same thing on the other side. If China fails as a country, it doesn't matter what the U.S. does, the world's going to be a mess. So there's a strong incentive for both countries to, and find space for each other to succeed and to work on things together. But there has to be a sustained level of communication. And that clearly uh, has not been the case uh, between these you know between the Trump administration starting with the Trump administration, but particularly because of COVID, you know, China really shut down in a way that I think I think ultimately will disadvantage China uh, more than the United States. Uh, and so it's going to have to make an effort, I think, to re-engage, um, because it's really made it difficult for foreigners to go into China. I think probably too much so. Not to mention a lot of com-
0: I think that when you when you see a country take that position, um, it's troubling because if you look at the technology areas we talked about, the investment areas we talked about, China still needs help from many parts of the world. Um, the U.S. needs help from many parts of the world. Um, so when, when I get very frustrated in the U.S. And people talk about, well, we should shut down immigration. We should make it, you know, almost impossible for Chinese students to come and study, and some might be spies.
1: It's stupid. And so, I mean, the U.S. the U.S. needs the, the, the wealth of knowledge, information, the energy from foreign students, and it's always been a country of immigration. China's not a country of immigration at all, but it wasn't until it started to open up in the 80s and 90s that foreign knowledge and, tech, knowledge and technology came into China and actually created the boom that occurred in China. So when you look at the technology boom, you look at the finance boom, you look at the healthcare boom; those were all driven by people that have been trained overseas to come back and help drive those that entrepreneurial activity in China. So shutting yourself off from that seems to be a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about something more specific, which is tech regulation,
0: or sorry, which is about how should U.S. Um, uh, handle the relationship uh, with China tech sector. So in twenty nineteen, I, I I wrote uh, a book on China's AI sector. I sort of really you know, reviewed just this, this whole process of uh, how the, um, the the media reports about China's AI power and related thoughts about those sort of you the like the sanction on a sense of time or the sanction on maybe be etc. It has nothing to do with the fact they're AI
2: companies it has to do with the fact that their AI is being applied in a way that the US is determined I I may not agree with how the US has characterized what's
1: happening in Xinjiang I think it's awful I'm not sure I would go and call it genocide but let's just say it's awful and so that are seen as part of the surveillance state, which the vast majority of the companies that are on the sanctions list are companies whose technology has direct military or you know, direct applications. Some DJI shouldn't be on the list. They make drones. DJI DGI should be on the list. Um, I don't think they should be on the list anymore. Um, TikTok should never have been considered to be on the list. I mean, it's a social media platform, so I think that. But do you agree like, that the AI companies, like you say, for human rights uh reasons, they should be on the list? I think if I think if you can demonstrate that technology is being used in a way that violates a violates your view of how the world should evolve, then it's up to you. Then, then you can decide. You know, China blocks all sorts of companies. Right, they criticize United Airlines for having a map that says Taiwan on it. You know, they made Mar- they shut down Marriott hotels because Marriott mentioned Taiwan. I mean, again, right. all, all these countries that's not AI oriented, but it's because it's again you mean, they, they have a policy. They have they want to see have have the world be seen a certain way. I mean, they were criticizing Intel, you know, very very harshly, uh, you know, for a long
0: time, and so again. It's, it, it's not I don't think this is about AI I think this is this is where technology gets reviewed through a political lens and again that lens is stirred so once you review it through that lens it's, it, it gets very very uh, difficult to manage what about national security risk it has been perhaps the most So,
1: um, I personally don't particularly feel threatened by Huawei. However, they did violate the U.S. sanctions on Iran. Uh, They were still selling and financing equipment sales into Iran and then violated U.S. sanctions, which is why money was picked up and put into uh, custody in uh, Canada. So, again, there's a law. You can decide to get around the law. You can decide to violate it. Um, Huawei was a very... Huawei has benefited greatly from uh, support from the Chinese government, financing from the Chinese government, and so on. However, do I necessarily think that that, I mean, the, the real sad thing for me is the West didn't have, the U.S. didn't have any companies that were competing with Huawei. The U.S. wasn't making companies that were competing with Huawei. Ericsson does, Nokia does. The U.S. really didn't have direct comparison to Huawei. Again, that goes back to my first point at the very beginning. A lot of the things that need to be fixed about, whether it's sanctions, or are all about fixing things within the U.S. that are completely within the U.S.'s control. But the strength of a Chinese company, the strength of a Chinese policy, the promotion of Chinese ideology, all those things kind of highlighted and made made what was already a sensitive point perhaps hypersensitive within the U.S. And it moved it from a discussion around technology to politics. And once you're in the political realm, I think it's uh, I think it's very difficult. But by the way, how many companies are ba- how many U.S. companies are banned in China? All the media companies that are banned in China. I mean, China can't have it both ways. China can't say we get to control exactly what you get access to here. But every Chinese firm, every Chinese media company every, should get full access in the U.S. I'm sorry. I mean, when you talk to Cisco, you talk to Ericsson, the
0: global market share of, of, Kepa, of telecom installations in China is not even close to global market share. So China's been favoring its domestic industries all the time. I'm not surprised. I'm not even terribly upset because to me that's rational. But you can't be hypocritical and say,
1: in the Chinese government. I'm talking like so- Dangerous one. Um, I am not at all in favor of banning um, investments by U.S. capital in private Chinese firms. I mean, clearly I'm biased. I mean, we have Chi-Ming, and that's Chi-Ming's business. And uh, I will say that Chi-Ming raised a new fund uh, in the last, uh, you know, few weeks. And
0: all the investors that were in prior Chi-Ming funds, all the U.S. investors, were also in this fund. So no investors dropped out. So you have a separation. But they let me ask you, Gary, did they business. ask you additional questions? Was there any, you know, more questions you haven't seen in the past that took place in your investor meeting this time around? Well, there was a sensitivity, there was a sensitivity around asking how do we think about this? How do we think about the centers that we're investing in? Um, how do we think about if we're investing in a company that has large Chinese government? Uh, involvement, uh, you know, how do we think about that? So,
1: you had those questions. You had those questions before, but there were probably more of them and they were a little more focused now. And so I view that, I also view that as being, you know, completely normal. So, again, going back to the discussion, so I would not like to see the U.S. restrict investment in Chinese firms. Um, I would not like to, I didn't think the U.S. should, uh, should block investment by Chinese, especially private Chinese capital, in a lot of U.S. firms, I think we should try and work really hard to try to keep that open. If you get into government investment, so should U.S. government entities be able to invest in sensitive Chinese entities? Probably not. Should Chinese entities, CIC, you know, should they be able to invest in sensitive? Probably not. I mean, there there will be a line somewhere. But I think to your point, the line now has become far more blurred and far broader to the point where if you start talking about blanket banning of capital investment by US entities in Chinese firms, I think that's I think that's a, a terrible mistake. But what is your sense of how things could evolve? My sense is that my sense is that, that there's pressure to become more restrictive. Uh, On investments in China. So, so then actually, uh, you know, public money and, uh, you know, not private endowment, private foundation money, uh, private individual money, but public money uh, may run into more restrictions. Um, You know, the, but I think you start to see the response on the China side. You know, let's not talk about private companies, let's talk about just public companies. So, CSRC and the SEC have been working diligently now the last four or five months on the potential delisting of Chinese firms in the U.S. And they should have been working on the same thing 15 years ago. The issue hasn't changed. The issue's been exactly the same. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's stupid. So the issue has always been that China, this is where your earlier comment about state secrets, the Chinese government saying the workbooks of an Internet company are state secrets seriously?
0: I mean, that's a joke. so, so, so all of that, all of that went too far. Now, I think they'll actually resolve this with China. With China basically capitulating completely. But I think I have an answer to your question of why they didn't work this out before, which you know they should have. I think you know we can draw an analogy to there the was- Cultural Revolution without the. Without the massive destruction and you know misery uh, imposed on people by the Cultural Revolution, the country wouldn't have you know sort of uh, coalesced all the resources toward reopening and reform. So things had to boil to this you know really terrible state for things to be resolved. Unfortunately, unfortunately, our systems generally change at the abyss. It's only when you're standing right on the edge of something truly disastrous that people actually finally
2: change. And that's what's terribly concerning to me is at some point it goes too far and you can't catch it. And that's where I worry about Chinese-U.S. relations and the discussions. If we don't increase
1: those dialogues by both number and intensity and breadth, both whether it's private, public, corporate, Political, etc., you run much, much higher risk. The more
0: interaction there is, the more discussion, the less likely we're going to find ourselves standing in the edge of a cliff. Yes, it's really important. Um, uh, But we know, I think, by this point of the discussion that there will be some sort of tech decoupling between the US and China. But it's going to be uneven, partial. symmetric
1: because there's very little Chinese tech in the U.S. So when you think about what China's been trying to do, it's been trying to have established champion companies to have a larger presence in the U.S., but you know, Tencent has games, ByteDance has TikTok, Alibaba has some business, but not great business. So when you look at the percentage of the U.S. economy that actually has any underlying technology from China, it's minuscule. So there's not a lot to be coupled in the tech world, taking from the U.S. and and sending it back to China. The other way around is probably more, I think, a concern for China, where China clearly doesn't want to have its enterprise software systems based on U.S. technology. Um, Even the best and the brightest new uh, GPU design companies in China all license foreign technology out of the U.K. or the U.S., at the core of their GPU design. Clearly China, and the same thing with the semiconductor manufacturing industry, so clearly China has an incentive. It's not just a decoupling incentive, it's actually a financial incentive to have more and more of that be natively sourced and natively developed. But it's coming to that, I think that the challenge has been technology is moving so quickly that trying to get ahead and trying to the dominant supplier of different technologies is really hard if you're not already there. And you know, China, you know, they wrote off 19 billion dollars in the Wuhan semiconductor company, 20 billion in Qinghua. I mean, that to me, I don't like to see that. It doesn't make me happy. It simply indicates how hard it is to establish leadership position in these trillion dollar tech industries. So the U.S. has been very fortunate. And I think China would be far better off working with foreign firms uh, to establish more of its own base. But I think it's going to go down the path of trying to do an awful lot itself. So on the decoupling side, the capital decoupling is being driven more by the U.S. The technical decoupling, I would submit to you, is being driven more by China.
0: Right. I would agree. But I think uh, what you were saying about how they aren't a lot of Chinese tech in the U.S., but I think developing country, every country that has, uh, you know, large aspirations for its uh, growth, you know, that Korea went through that, Japan went through that, uh, the U.S. went through that over its, over its long history. I think there's a, there's one, one of the things in the U.S. that's probably troubling to a lot of the U.S., and again, it's particularly the political world, is the concern that China's not playing fair in acquiring the technology that a lot of the intellectual property a lot of the things that China's developing, there may have been a source of that that was stolen or misappropriated from a U.S. or other foreign firm. And I honestly don't know how much. I mean, I've seen studies in terms of hundreds of billions of dollars, but in a $14 trillion economy, that's really not that big. So, again, I kind of, I think there's probably something there, but... I don't think that I don't think that throwing your hands up and simply saying, well, you should never work with Chinese firms. I don't think that's an intelligent response. Um, Nor is it an intelligent response for China to say, well, we never steal any intellectual property. Or you should, in order to work in China, you should have to transfer your intellectual property. Again, both sides are taking positions that are not really reasonable for the long term, long term uh, collaboration that I think has to happen. Talk about regulatory crackdown on China's tech sector. Um, now there are lots of investors who hold the view that, you know, they're asking themselves whether Chinese technology is investable, or are they becoming semi-public utility companies? So my sense is that.
1: What's happening in the regulatory frameworks in China around technology should have happened a long time ago, and so there are just a couple you know, viewpoints on this. So one is on the payment area. If you look at what happened with Alipay and Tenpay, for effectively seven years, the Chinese government had no really no real regulatory uh, impact on those two companies at all, to the point where they were over 90 percent of all new bank account formations were occurring on those two platforms. So, clearly, the government was not thinking ahead. Uh, when they launched those businesses, you know, the, the attitude and the regulatory uh, framework, and I was involved with a joint venture bank, so we talked about this at, at the board meeting. The, the bank took the position, well, consumers trust us. They're not going to trust these startups, so we don't really need to worry. Oops work out so well. And I think that what was pretty clear is the government did not understand, the regulatory did not understand the level of trust that Ali and Tencent and some other Chinese technology firms had established with the Chinese consumer. The data that they collected, the knowledge that they had about buying habits, travel habits, and so on, I think the government was caught by surprise. So, the regulatory response, of course, is going to be an overreaction because it feels like it's behind and it's catching up, so you had this huge, you know, this huge overreaction on, you know, uh, on Ant and then Jack, Jack Law, you know, Tencent, uh, Gates, etc. Uh, that then led into the education system uh, because they realized an awful lot of teachers were frankly moonlighting as tutors and are making more money as tutors than they were as teachers. So they allowed some fundamental things to run away from them. That they should have been, more, they should have been paid more attention to. So the regulatory framework again, it's hard for a government when technology moves so quickly. It's hard for a government to be thinking ahead clearly enough to have regulatory frameworks that kind of capture technology as it evolves. These are all highly, highly reactive responses. Um, so I, I took it as it's, it's not. Some people have told me, well. Now a company can't get too big. It's like, no, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think there's anything... Un- I think the tech sector is completely investable in China, but I think that the government will be more... will be applying some kind of regulatory framework or framework earlier than it had in the past, and I don't think that's a bad thing. When you look at the anti-monopoly behavior that Tencent and Alibaba engaged in, I Bayou, etc., it was awful. And you could look at the investments we had investments from dozens of in dozens of our companies from Alibaba and Tencent, and they would force the
0: company to choose to work with either Tencent or Alibaba, depending upon who the investor is. So their reach and their their monopolistic behavior around the distribution of those products and services needed to be regulated. was that um, you had... I mean, the Ministry of Education is very powerful in China, and they've always viewed themselves as having 100% control over what kids get to be taught. And they suddenly realized that there was a third of what kids are being taught that they had no control or visibility into at all. And I think that, again, you get these... Any time a government is responding to something that took them
1: by surprise graceful. You have this huge lumbering elephant and it suddenly charges through the trees. And so what they did was they reacted very harshly. Um, they, re- they, they destroyed billions of dollars of capital very, very quickly. Um, they actually didn't solve the problem because immediately the Chinese consumers and the tuners, you know, they started to figure out ways around the system that they put in place. But it's because it was a highly reactionary system and now I think they're working on policies and things that may be sustainable for a longer period of time. But any time the government is caught by surprise and reacts, you you definitely it 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 will definitely come across as an overreaction. The common prosperity side of things, it's a great catchphrase, common prosperity. No one can disagree with common prosperity. But if they really want to address the education system, what they'll do is they'll they'll change the Hukou system, and they'll change a whole bunch of things that allow people to qualify for these national exams. They'll tell Beida and Tsinghua
0: that 20% of their students have to come from the 20 poorest provinces. If they really want to fix the education system, that's what they'll do. And instead, they're putting a Band-Aid on it, and hopefully they'll make a more permanent, sustainable change in the near future. So, yes, uh,
1: the ability to move forward and innovate um, but again if the Chinese tech sector was a truly open market
2: so a U.S. company operating under U.S. law and a
1: Chinese company operating under Chinese law competed with each other and the U.S. firm had an advantage because the U.S. government was not trying to regulate algorithm development Let's just as an example then I think it would be it would be a significant uh, impairment. But the reality is they're not going to consider foreign sources, so it's all about what's happening within the domestic market. So you're not, the Chinese entrepreneurs don't have to worry about foreign competition. They just have to worry about their other domestic competition, which all should be regulated the same way. So it should be a relatively level playing field. Now, I will say, I think, that the government somehow thinking that it, it can get involved with selecting algorithms for development, where I think the government's, again, overreaching. And it somehow thinks that, it's, you know, again, the Chinese government, more than the U.S. government, tends to look at what the entrepreneurs have done and say, well, they were only successful because of us. You know, we let them be successful. And I think they grossly overestimate their own abilities. Um, so when you look at ByteDance and you look at TikTok and you look at the, you look at the algorithms that uh, Doya and, and, and uh, TikTok use, I think the government says, well, that, you know, we could do that. And again, I think they're making terrible – they're going to start to try to pick technology winners. Um, they have this program now called the Little Giant Program. That's going to be a disaster. Because governments can do well with sectors and funding basic research, but once they transfer into picking companies as winners, I think it's very, very difficult. Right. Um, so again,
2: I, I think all of these, because it's, it's all within China, so it should be
1: a relatively level playing field among the Chinese firms, so that part should be okay. Um, but we'll
0: see. of a time, but uh, so see. You know, let's just look at what's happening in Shanghai in terms of the COVID lockdown, and so we have this feeling that politics are are sort of.
2: I'm sorry, sustainable.
0: Can the country innovate? You know, the, yes, the it's common so. idea of, you know, a, a, a free society can innovate, but not a, a society that there's no freedom. So I think, th- I, think, I think it's a really
1: tricky question. I mean, the U.S. just had its experiment with politics over science, and it was called the Trump administration. much attention to science. Um, and we had people like Peter Navarro that you know basically were ignorant when it came to actually technology drivers and long term you know, benefits of US leadership in particular areas. So let's set that aside. I think that you know there's a there's a fundamental difference between innovation and invention. Innovation is where you take something and you cycle on it and you iterate again and again and again and make it better and better and better you do that in as fast a way as possible and I think Chinese uh, the Chinese uh, private enterprise, the Chinese, even the SOEs, the Chinese society is extremely good at that. Then you have invention. Invention is where you're coming up with something that's fundamentally different than anything that's come before. That's really where the question is from Chinese society. I don't think it's about innovation. I think Chinese society can innovate. So the question is, can it, it Can it invent? Can it create something from scratch that is brand new? You know, could it be, could it create the... And I think that China's been comfortable with U.S. leadership in many ways because there's been something to follow. And China's counted on the fact that it could modify things and and use its market power to wind up being successful. And I think they've done a brilliant job with that. But when you start to look at the underpinnings of the society... Will the most inventive people, not just the most innovative, will the most
0: inventive people come from something that's maybe not as open and not as free? What's your um, answer? Express yourself. You know, I I think so. I think around invention, there's a question. So we're just.
1: China does in 10 years has a healthier, wealthier, more robust Chinese society. I think it's I think it's good. Um, there's some questions around some of the policies on whether that's going to happen, but I think I think every American, I think everyone in the world should actually hope for a very successful and uh, you know healthy Chinese society. I think the same thing for India. You know, I mean we have these countries with over a billion people.
0: We have to hope that those societies uh, thrive. Agree, totally agree. So now I'm I know we only have a couple more minutes, but let's quickly talk about investment. So I've seen the Chinese uh VC sector, of uh, the tech innovation sector has become more inverse-looking and more self-content because some of the factors we just talk about, you know, how US dollar funds potentially uh, are being pushed aside.
1: Discussion among the entrepreneurs, uh, depending upon the sector, on whether or not you should. Uh, let, let's separate the listing from the uh, sourcing of capital. You know, right now, you can take companies where the majority of the money is U.S. dollars, you can take those companies public with the Shanghai Stock Exchange. It just has to be structured the right way. And the investors have to be patient for the listing requirements and ultimately the repatriation of. Or the conversion of RMB back to dollars, the repatriation of dollars. So, so there's really nothing prohibiting dollar-funded companies from listing in the Shanghai, Shenzhen, uh, you know, stock exchanges, you know, or obviously the Hong Kong stock exchange. So the barrier comes down to: does the entrepreneur feel that there will be uncomfortable questions
2: from dollar investors, or will, will there be uncomfortable questions from the Chinese government if they have foreign investors? And we have seen that happen on both sides. So we, what we tell many
1: entrepreneurs, if we think it's sensitive, we will tell them, you shouldn't take money from us. Because if you're really worried about how the Chinese government's going to react to foreign investors, even with our r and funds, there's going to be some kind of foreign connection just because of the people involved in the fund. You know, so I'm an American, so I'm a. So if you trace back to the ownership of the fund far enough, you find my, you know, you find me. So the Chinese government can say, well, if you have can have no foreign ownership at all, you know that doesn't fit you. So, so what we try to do is we try to say, if you're really worried about that, then you should take money from a pure Chinese RMB firm. If you just want RMB, then we have RMB funds. If you want dollars, then we have dollars.
0: So the investment side is managed, I think, that way. The listing side uh, can can Gary, can I just shrunk. quickly follow up with one question? Does that mean, you know, that the type of investments you can make in China has shrunk, has shrunken to a much smaller, narrow uh, field? It's not shrunk it's not fair to describe it as
1: small and narrow. It's still the man so let's say let's say ten years ago we could invest in 90% of the opportunities in China with a dollar-based fund. I think now you can still invest in 75%. So you're still covering the vast majority of the opportunities in China. Okay. And a lot of it is not because the government, a lot of it is the entrepreneurs would rather prefer to have RB you now because the converting of dollars has gotten a little more complicated. Um, that's how I would think about it. Okay. And then you will go to say
0: about the listing- yeah, about the listing side, for the, again, I am, you asked me earlier if I'm hopeful, and I always said I'm always hopeful. So the CSRC and SEC discussions, to me, and what we've been briefed on, indicate there'll be a resolution. So the issue on whether you can go public on the US exchange or not, I think that issue over the next three, four, or six months goes away. So then we'll be back to the situation as it's a question of is the multiple better on the domestic exchanges? Uh, is the profile of the company suitable for the Hong Kong exchange? Uh, is it something that should really go public on the New York side? And I, and I think I think we'll be back to the same level of consideration. Um, the difference to an American investor listing in Hong Kong or listing in domestic Chinese exchanges is just one of liquidity it's 18, 18 to 24 months longer yeah. post IPO to get your money back up And that's a legitimate concern for a lot of investors. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I have three more questions. Can you just give me very short answers? I know you have to go, but it's very brief answers, But because I really want to hear what your, what your thoughts are on this. So now we know that Chinese
1: Significant semiconductor investment practice, very very large advanced manufacturing, very large AI, very large enterprise software, so all the things that we talked about that are substitution oriented, we have a significant investment practice both in dollars and RP.
0: Six hundred million dollars in three funds in the last five years. Um, so I think you know, we've had I think nine IPOs. Uh, we've had four companies license technology into Chinese firms. We've helped a handful of Chinese companies license technology into U.S. you know for firms. Um, so I think that right now the interaction between the two groups, I could always wish it was better, but right now, given that the two groups have only been in place for a few years, I'm quite happy with how it's going notion of Chinese government advisory body, and every billionaire in China, multi-billionaire in China, is figuring out a way to talk positively about common to prosperity and figuring out a way to give money back. You can just see all of a sudden people are very philanthropic, and billions of dollars are being given to the government and all the rest of it. Um, I think the I think we're a long way away from the, the venture model has played with almost every aspect of giving away money as part of the investments. Neil, you should just ask Neil. Neil, you're worth 5 billion, 8 billion, 10 billion. Why don't you just give away half your money? (laughs) Alright. With that, thank you so much, Gary. And it's been great chatting with you. And I'm going to stop the live stream now.